Three teenagers in Georgia who went to Aga home are now being charged with murder after the crime went awry. Jeremy Munson and Mackenzie Davenport, both 19, along with 18-year-old Sydney Mahan, are currently being held without bail due to the result of what police called an ongoing lover's quarrel. On July 3rd, the trio went to egg the home of Jonathan Gilbert. As they were vandalizing the home, Gilbert came out to confront the suspects. The three then ran back to their vehicle, and as Gilbert approached the car, Mahan pulled out a gun and shot Gilbert multiple times from the back seat where she was sitting. The teens sped away in their car, leaving Gilbert lying in the middle of the road. Police arrived at the scene shortly after a report of a man down, and Gilbert was pronounced dead at the scene. Fortunately, an eyewitness was able to provide crucial information which allowed authorities to trace one of the suspect's cell phones to the next county. This led police to the abandoned getaway vehicle with the suspected murder weapon still inside. All three culprits were taken into custody that same day, although only Mahan pulled the trigger. Sheriff Daryl Dick said in a statement that all three are responsible for the victim's death, saying, Together they bought that ticket, now together they can ride that ride. The trio is charged with criminal trespassing, murder, and battery. Mahan and Munson additionally face charges of aggravated assault and possession of a firearm during the commission of a crime. A Pentagon whistleblower claims that UFOs have killed humans, and the U.S. government will go to any lengths necessary to protect this secret from the public. David Grush, an Air Force veteran, has stated that he learned about a top-secret UFO retrieval program during his 14 years of service. He later went to work for the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency and the National Reconnaissance Office. His position at the NRO involved collaborating with the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force, which was specifically created to investigate UFOs. Grush went public with these allegations in June 2023, with his most concerning comments revolving around extraterrestrials with malicious intentions. He explained that, I think the logical fallacy there is because they're advanced, they're kind. We'll never really understand their full intent, and that's because we're not them. He did say that multiple briefs he received during this program indicated human deaths had occurred during some of the aforementioned events. Based on nuclear site probing activities and witness testimonies, he believes that negative activity is happening at the hands, or tentacles, or whatever, of these alien life forms. Although he did mention that getting into the specifics would involve classified information, he did say that multiple briefs he received during this program indicated human deaths had occurred during some of these aforementioned events. He says that as part of the American government covering up this secret, he has seen substantive evidence that white-collar crimes were committed and claims that killings had been ordered over the years, as was described to him. He stated, quote, I've heard some really un-American things that I don't want to repeat right now. As highlighted by New York Magazine, the following are just a few more of the most intriguing claims Grush revealed in his tell-all with News Nation. Grush claims that the Vatican was involved in a UFO cover-up beginning in 1933. He said that the first case he was briefed on involved an unidentified craft which was down in Italy. The Italian government stowed the vehicle away until the end of World War II. During the Italian Civil War that followed, Pope Pius XII arranged for the craft to be back-channeled to the United States, which was completed in 1944-45. Grush also alleged that a private defense contractor currently has possession of a UFO. He said that the government UFO retrieval program sometimes gives recovered crafts to private corporations to study and analyze, after which they sell the obtained info back to the government. 
This is especially heinous to Grush, who has been advocating for UFO evidence to be released for wider academic and private research. Lastly, Grush said that included in briefs given to him was that massive UFOs have been observed by the U.S. military. He said, a lot of them are very large, like a football field kind of size. I remember interviewing these personnel and thinking, either these people are lying to me, having a psychotic break, or this is some crazy but true stuff that's happening. And I have no good explanation that's prosaic at all for this, because this is not explainable by swamp gas, St. Elmo's fire, a ball of lightning, etc. This is like a tangible technical craft we're seeing up close and personal in some cases. Although it can be easy to dismiss any claims we hear about aliens, there have been many assertions about the U.S. government that were brushed aside as conspiracy theories, only for them to turn out to be true. If the U.S. government is truly hiding proof of extraterrestrials, it seems fairly plausible that it would be going down as alleged by Grush. In a similar vein, a peculiar green fireball was witnessed across the south-central to southeastern United States in the early morning hours of July 24th. The American Meteorological Society reports 52 sightings across six different states, from Fort Worth, Texas to Atlanta, Georgia. This large and perplexing mass of light was even captured on video by cell phones, doorbell cameras, and even a dash cam. Although weather outlets such as AccuWeather explain this away as just a meteor, some are not convinced. Bro Bible compiled quotes from viewers who speculate that there is more than meets the eye. Quote, I seen it firsthand. This was not a meteor, one claim exclaimed. Another said that it looked a lot like the streak in the sky in Vegas with the aliens in the backyard, referencing a supposed extraterrestrial encounter from June. Multiple viewers considered the suspicious meteor's crash landing, or lack thereof, quote, no explosion, so I assume we have aliens landed in Gretna. And the other, can't agree that it was a meteorite because I saw no fire but it was the most beautiful and scariest thing I have ever seen in 58 years. 2023 is shaping up to be one of the deadliest years ever on Mount Everest. After a record number of permits to climb were issued, the world's highest peak has seen a spring season that has beat out most prior years in its lethality. In this climbing season, 17 Everest climbers have died or gone missing and been assumed dead. This puts 2023 as the second deadliest climbing season on record, just behind 2015 when 18 climbers were killed when a 7.8 magnitude earthquake, the worst seen by Nepal in over 80 years, triggered two simultaneous converging avalanches, and just ahead of 2014 when 16 Nepali guides were killed in an avalanche. The 2014 incident caused Everest to be closed to climbers for the rest of the season, allegedly as the multitude of sources I reference for these death statistics can't seem to agree on what year in the 20-teens was the deadliest, or even what year these natural disasters occurred. I've gone with the most commonly claimed stats. Although 2023 has experienced no natural disasters so far, which have been the cause of record-setting deaths in previous years, expedition coordinators say extreme weather and impatient and inexperienced climbers have led to many avoidable deaths. Temperatures of around negative 28 Celsius, negative 18.4 Fahrenheit, are expected this time of year, but temperatures were still dipping to negative 40 Celsius, which is actually still the same in Fahrenheit. Founder of the Austrian expedition company Furtenbach Adventures, Lucas Furtenbach, is of the opinion that most of this year's deaths could have been prevented. Apart from the three Sherpas in the icefall and that IMG client who probably had a heart attack or stroke, 
I'm convinced that all the other deaths could have been avoided by following safety standards and sufficient oxygen supply at all times. They all have a similar pattern. This, in combination with the fact that oxygen cylinders have been stolen from several teams, including ours, shows one of the main problems this season, oxygen logistics and safety standards. Garrett Madison, founder of Madison Mountaineering, felt that these deaths were the result of inexperienced climbers working with low-cost operators. He explained, We require climbers to have successfully completed several big peaks before joining us for Everest. I've seen a trend where companies say, No experience required, anything is possible, and I don't support that model. There seems to be a consensus among the bigger operators that these shifty smaller companies can be misleading and even dangerous, especially for newer climbers. Caroline Pemberton, one of the owners and general manager for Climbing the Seven Summits, notes that the prospect of saving thousands can be enticing to climbers, but there's a reason these companies are able to undercut the competition. Low-cost operators essentially only provide logistics services and outright state that they take no responsibility for the safety of their climbers. Whereas traditional operators do provide logistics, their services center on safety and mountain guidance by experienced professionals. As explained by Pemberton, in many cases, the two compounds with the cheap price attract the ill-prepared with dire consequences. Sadly, people lose their lives in an effort to save $10,000. It appears that they do not anticipate that people who are not climbers are incapable of looking after themselves and cannot manage their energy and oxygen levels, and regularly collapse after the goal, summit, has been reached. The incidents occur on the way down. People with little or no experience who book under-resourced, cheap expeditions are exposing themselves to huge risks, yet, due to the positive message they receive from these operators, are naive to the dangers they face. Many of these operators cannot even afford to finance the expeditions they have sold to their clients. They are merely getting clients due to having a lower price than anyone else. The impact of underpricing is considerable, including a lack of oxygen and supplies, understaffing, staff that doesn't get paid, and so on. Similarly, Phil Crampton, the founder of Altitude Junkies, stated that, As far as dodgy local operators go, they take the client's money, Sherpa gets sick and goes home early. The client has no Sherpa, so they go home, and then the company folds and reopens next season under a new company name. Simple, brilliant, and still supported by the gullible Westerner who should know better but is looking for the cheapest price. The Tibetan side of Everest, which has been closed to foreign climbers for three consecutive climbing seasons, already has regulations in place, like requiring Chinese citizens to have previously summited an 8,000-meter peak before attempting Everest. But conventional operators do not believe Nepal will be following suit anytime soon. Phil Crampton shared that he feels there is not much incentive for Nepal to make any significant changes. I don't think that Nepal really cares who's climbing the hill these days. It's all about the money received for permits. Based on previous changes, putting any restrictions into place would lower the revenue from tourism or rejected operators. There will always be risks associated with climbing and attempting to summit a peak, especially one like Mount Everest. But while climbers and mountaineering companies go unregulated, the risks are spread to even the most prepared. Multiple companies reported the theft of crucial supplies, including tents, cooking gear, and the previously mentioned oxygen cylinders. This served to exacerbate already existing supply shortages at higher altitude base camps, as the colder-than-usual weather prevented stocking at these base camps before impatient climbers set out. It seems that if regulations had been put in place and climbers had been just a bit more patient, 
then many of this season's deaths could have been avoided. We can only hope that the Nepalese government will be encouraged to institute and enforce new guidelines after the resulting casualties this season. 20 citizens of Beijing are dead and 27 are still missing due to massive flooding resulting from a typhoon. After ravaging Taiwan in the northern Philippines, Typhoon Doksuri brought record-breaking floods in 478 million yuan, equivalent of 67 million USD, and direct losses to the Chinese capital. After ravaging Taiwan in the northern Philippines, Typhoon Doksuri brought record-breaking floods in 478 million yuan, equivalent 67 million USD, and direct losses to the Chinese capital. The Beijing Meteorological Bureau recorded 29.3 inches of rain from Saturday to Wednesday, the most ever in the 140 years this record has been kept. Approximately 1 million people in Beijing and the surrounding areas were evacuated as President Xi Jinping called for any and all efforts to be made to rescue those who were lost or trapped due to the storm. Like hundreds of residents in a town in Hebei, a bordering province of Beijing, who had to be rescued when flooding stranded them inside the lower floors of their apartment buildings. Some said the waters reached a height of 13 feet. China's agriculture ministry has already promised to allocate 60 million, 432 million yuan, in relief funding to help recovery of the affected region's agriculture sector. The country is facing concerns over food security between two typhoons and rice export bans from Russia, India, and the UAE. Although China still maintains large food reserves, the world market could easily push the already skyrocketing cost of food staples even higher. Oftentimes, what affects the market is not just supply and demand, but also sentiment of market participators, says Liu Yan, senior analyst at CNGrain.com. Export bans in some countries and panic buying in others could exacerbate issues from natural disasters. In honor of Missing Persons Week in Australia, I'd like to use the remainder of the episode to draw attention to a few missing persons cases that remain unsolved. According to the Australian Federal Police, there are 750 sets of unidentified human remains and 2,500 long-term missing persons cases in Australia. Their 35th annual National Missing Persons Week campaign focuses on cases dating back to 1964, though I would like to focus on cases not currently being featured. Michelle Coral Lewis was born in 1967. She was described as a tomboy and very independent. She was very close friends with her foster mother's grandson, Kenny Harris, who had cerebral palsy. Lewis and Harris were regulars at a nightclub in town called Flamingos. On the evening of January 14, 1989, Michelle was watching movies at the house of her old friend Carrie Bartley. Michelle left around 10.45 p.m., leaving on her mountain bike to ride the short distance home. Her foster mother, Adeline Salhus, woke the next day to find that Michelle had never made it home and quickly reported her missing. Kenny Harris was distraught by Michelle's disappearance and was determined to find her. He would even show up to police searches to observe their work. A major investigation was launched into her disappearance, but the case soon went cold with no leads on where Michelle Lewis had gone or ended up. In 2013, lead detective Anne Gumley said, If you find that bike, you'll find Michelle. She also said that she can't let go of the case to this day and wants to be the one to make the arrest if the case is ever solved. After much urging from Gumley, the Rockhampton Police Cold Cases Unit began to re-examine Michelle's case in 2021. As of 2022, Detective Senior Sergeant Tara Kentwell said they are confident the case could be solved, but any developments in the case since then have not been broadly publicized. Police have suspected for some time that Michelle was murdered shortly after she went missing. During last year's Missing Persons Week, 
the Queensland government announced a $500,000 reward for information that leads to a conviction in Michelle's case. The second case I'd like to highlight is that of Jason Shannon, an 11-month-old who was abducted in West Australia in 1973. Jason or his remains have never been found. He has been missing for 50 years as of June 9th. In 1973, Jason's parents, Barry and Michelle Shannon, had recently begun a temporary separation. Michelle had been living with her parents since a physical abuse incident in which Barry had slapped her. During the separation period, Barry had been stopping by his in-law's home daily to visit with Jason as part of access visits legally afforded to him. Around 7.15pm on June 9, 1973, Barry Shannon left the home with Jason. Michelle's father, Alfred, attempted to intervene, even trying to chase them down by car, but he was unable to find them. They would unfortunately locate Barry just two hours later when he was involved in a head-on crash with another vehicle. Barry was killed by the crash. However, despite an extensive search, baby Jason was not found at the crash site. Police looked for Jason for several days, eventually calling off the search on June 15th, but said that they were still looking into many leads. Police took a lot of interest in the two-hour period between the abduction and the crash, but were ultimately summed by the unaccounted-for time. Michelle pleaded for the return of her son, even appearing on TV to plead with the public. Within six months, she and her parents would move back to the United Kingdom, where they were originally from. Michelle eventually remarried and had another son. In 2015, she returned to Australia in the scene of the crash to lay flowers. She said in a statement the following year that she still holds on to hope that her oldest son is still alive somewhere. The police have two major theories of what happened to Jason Shannon. Jason is presumed to be dead. And likewise, the first theory is that his father, Barry, killed Jason and hid his body before getting into the car crash that ended his life. It is also believed that Barry likely purposefully caused the crash in a suicide attempt. However, the second theory that police are focusing on is that Barry may have given his son to someone to be raised in secret prior to his crash. This theory was heavily investigated when the South Australian police reviewed the case in 2016 as part of a long-term cold case campaign. The premise is especially interesting as Barry's parents wanted custody of Jason following Michelle and Barry's separation. Although detectives did investigate whether Jason's now-deceased paternal grandparents and uncle left any portion of their estates to someone who would have matched Jason's age at the time, nothing significant was ever discovered. The 2016 investigation also looked into a rumor about a woman Barry formed a relationship with during treatment for mental illness. Although there is a chance that Jason lived for many years after his abduction, or is even still alive, he is often presumed to be dead, likely not helped by his age at the time of his disappearance. He is listed as missing, presumed murdered, on the South Australian Crime Stoppers website. A reward of up to $1 million is being offered for any information that leads to the conviction of those responsible for Jason's death or that helps locate his remains. As highlighted by New York Magazine, the following are just a few more of the most intriguing claims Grush revealed in his tell-all with News Nation. Thank you, dog. 